You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you today that you have revealed your truth and your word. You've revealed uh, the information we need to live, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or whether it's at the very end, Lord, before the return of Jesus. Bless us today with the information that you have for us that we need. May it be more than information. May it help us, Lord, draw close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we just we want to be closer to you. Bless us and help us in this hour. We call upon you and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Send your spirit. Amen. So, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2 today. Jesus' death for us on the cross stands at the center of Christianity. Lots of people are out there teaching that, um, but then when you get into the, the whole piece of their teaching, sometimes it seems like not all the pieces are there. We're going to look, though, at a, at a pretty significant passage that I think will help us. Jesus is at the center. He is the Word made flesh. He is God coming to His creation. God hated, tortured, sacrificed, He's made sin for us. He's sacrificed for His creation. And He in return is received by whosoever in His creation is willing to receive Him. He's loved by those in His creation who are willing to choose love. And we look to Him on the cross. We look crossword. And we want to better understand His love for us. And so as we look at this today, we are wanting to draw close to Him. His, his humanity unites Him to us. His divinity saves us. When we say, come Lord Jesus, we are praying that He will come. But I wonder if we know to whom we are praying. Do we know Him? Or have we absorbed some other kind of homogenized uh, version of Jesus? So we want to look again and see again what does the Scripture say. say? So I want to consider with you some of what the Bible teaches about Jesus' humanity. Now let's be clear. Uh, when we learn about Christ's humanity, we're learning also about our humanity. Jesus came supremely close to us to understand our experience and to open the way for us to understand His experience. So we maybe don't think as much about the last piece of that. So I'd like to look at Philippians 2 today, and we're going to see something that uh, might be helpful to us. We're going to look for a pattern. We're looking at this passage. I know you're familiar with it. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 13. Uh, we perhaps have even memorized Philippians 2, verse 5. But what we want to do here is look at the broader passage. So we're looking at Philippians 2, verse 5, and out to verse 13. I want to keep it practical, too, so I'm going to go ahead and sort of tip you off. I want you to look for a pattern as we are looking at this passage, the pattern is going to be you, then Jesus, and then you, and then Jesus. I wonder if we'll find that pattern. So Philippians 2, uh, verse, and here's going to be our pattern. Let's look at it here. I'm going to read it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes we read just verse 5, sometimes we read out to verse 11, but we're not going to stop yet. Let's go out through verse 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do 
for his good pleasure. So there's the longer piece there, the longer passage. And on the screen here, I've sort of outlined you and then Jesus, you and then Jesus. When it says, let this mind be in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. That's the command. And it goes from you to Jesus. It talks about Jesus and it comes back to you and about Jesus. And so we're going to look at this a little bit more. But this is an interesting way maybe to think about this passage. And it might give you, uh, before we're done here, it might give you uh, a sense of it that you're not, you haven't maybe seen in this way before. So I want to start with this word here. We've got a couple of uh, words in the original language that are actually uh, very helpful to us. Uh, one of the words is morphe. Jesus came in the morphe. So it says in our passage, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. And so where it says form, we have this word morphe. Um, morphe means shape. Being in the shape of God. Jesus was in the shape of God. Uh, we have this word sometimes when we're studying um, the shape. If you're studying a language, you'll, you'll take the words apart by using morphology. Um, if you're studying um, anatomy and physiology and you're looking at the different, the different muscles or the different parts of the body, there's again the shape. We have this word morphology. But for, this, for us, you know, Jesus is unambiguously God. Let's not lose that sight here, although we're going to look at some of what this says about his humanity. His, his divinity saves us, but his humanity is also essential. I don't think this is like, you know, a coin that you really need both pieces. You need the front and the back side, uh, or you don't have the whole truth. So Jesus is unambiguously God. He is God in his being. It's not only who he is, but it is what he is, he is being in the form of God. Jesus is God. He's not God Jr. He's not like, uh, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that God the Father is God Almighty and Jesus is just God Mighty. But if we look at the passages where we have those verses, I don't think we can really split it out that way. Jesus himself is just as much God as God the Father is God. Uh, how do you describe God's being? What, how would you do it? What language would you use? There's three, word, three times this word morphe appears in the Bible. In Mark 16, 12, Jesus appears in another form to his disciples. Remember, he's been crucified and he comes back. He's walking with them and his, who he is is sort of withheld from them at the, at the beginning. And so uh, then his re identity is revealed. They go and tell others, but they don't believe them. In Philippians 2.6 and 2.7 are the other of those three occurrences of Morphe. So Jesus is the shape of God because, not because he's an artificial or a fake, it's because Jesus is God. He's just God come in human flesh. And then, of course, in verse 7, he takes the form, the Morphe, the, the being of man upon himself. So he exists as God, but he consents to step down into the beingness of a creature. He determined to become a man, to enter into the humanity which had lost the likeness of God. Of course, remember that in Genesis, we're all made, humans are made in the likeness of God, the image of God, and God is determined to restore that. Satan is determined to erase that. And when you look around today, the devil's doing a pretty strong job working on the erasing part. But God isn't done yet. God is going to have his way. Now the extent to which Jesus descended is, uh, is so extreme that uh, it's shocking. And even some of the Bible translators, uh, I think, struggle with this. And this, this is also true. If you've ever seen a Jesus movie, Jesus is shown hanging on the cross. And uh, he's always shown with a loincloth, you know, blowing in the wind. But probably we understand Jesus hung on the cross and when he was crucified absolutely naked. But it, it helps to cover him up. And here in the text it says in the King James or the New King James Version that uh, Jesus was, uh, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form, the morphe of a servant or a bondservant. 
And that's an interesting word too. We're not going to look at a lot of Greek words, but this is just one other one we want to look at today. And that is this word that Jesus emptied himself. Um, so it's the word ekinosin. You don't need to really remember that. But a literal translation of this, uh, verse 7, would say something like this. It would say that, uh, I'm trying to find that exact one here. Jesus made himself of no reputation. The more literal one is simply that Jesus emptied himself. So what did he empty himself of? And that's kind of a question that theologians debate. Uh, now you know that, um, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, about these different attributes. God, God cannot change. That's one of his attributes. He is, he is immutable. He doesn't change. And classic theology says God cannot change. Classic theology says that um, God is kind of above human passions. It says that he's not even really moved by, uh, by humanity, by us. This is sort of deep in classic uh, Catholic theology, and a lot of it's been taken over into Protestant theology. But when it says here that Jesus emptied himself, uh, God had to do something, and that's why he had to empty himself. Yes, Betty? Yeah, yeah in the Andrew's Bible, it says that he set aside his divine intelligence. I think that it's true that he, well, that's the question. What did he empty himself of? The question is when it says uh, in the Andrew's study Bible, it says that Jesus set aside his divine powers. I believe he did set aside. He set aside some of his divine powers. Not all, but certain of his divine powers he set aside. And one of the reasons for that, for example, is what? If you're God, can you die? Not unless you take some pretty, pretty radical steps, because God is immortal. God alone has immortality, and so we cannot die. But to make atonement, what do you need to do? Somebody's got to die. Who has to die? Somebody who's equal to the law and value. Somebody whose character is sinless. Somebody who's never sinned or chosen to be against God. How do you find somebody like that? Well, I can give you the hint right now. There are three persons in the universe that it could do it. If God the Father, or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit could take a human body. Uh, but if he took a human body like Adam, remember, Adam was conditionally immortal, right? If Adam had not made some mistakes there, if Adam had not sinned, he, and he just kept eating the right diet, I guess we could say, he would have kept on living. But... Um, what we have is God has to be able to die. And so Jesus has to take a kind of humanity. What kind of humanity must he take? He must take a kind of humanity that is capable of dying. So uh, we look at this in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death... We see him crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for you and for me. All of us. Every single person. For the person who sneers at him. For the atheist. For the person who believes in him. Jesus tasted death for everybody. For the person who says there is no God, Jesus tasted death for that person as well. It goes on if you look at Hebrews 2 and verse 14. And what does it say there? It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through, and there's our word, that through death, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So that's Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus took a kind of humanity, what kind? The kind that could die. Because a sacrifice had to be made to atone for man, and there were three persons in all the universe that could do it. And Jesus was the one that is doing it. As someone said, Jesus was born to die. He couldn't die while he was in full possession of his divine glory. So what did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself of some of his attributes so that he could complete his mission. One of the attributes uh, that he set aside into the, into the Father's power apparently was his immortality. So, maybe you remember these classic advantages. Here we go. Uh, these classic uh, attributes of God. These are, uh, there's different lists of these out there, but these five are, are probably mostly the classics. 
God, if you're God, you have these things. You are self-existent. If you're a God, you are omnipotent. You have all power. If you're God, you have omnipresence. You are everywhere at once. Many of us spend our day attempting to be omnipresent without any success. Uh, omniscience, all-knowingness, and immutability, meaning you do not change, you cannot change. And of course, God is perfect. If you're perfect, how do you get better? You don't get better, so you cannot change. Yes? Well, his forgiving, remember, he was forgiving even, even, he kept that power and he used it throughout his ministry, so that was one of his divine powers. The question was, did Jesus still have the power uh, to forgive? Did he lay that aside? Thankfully, thankfully he did not. Uh, but these are the five classic, and there's, like I say, there's different lists. Now, classic theology says that God has these attributes, and... Um, Jesus is God. Classic theology says that. Now here's where we get, it gets kind of, kind of squishy though, because in classic theology, what about all these things? How many of these things did Jesus have? Have you ever thought about that question? I think a lot of these things were laid aside, right? So immutability, did Jesus change? If you think about it, he went from being immortal, having life in himself, to an ability to die. So it seems like he trusted that to the Father and died for us. All power. He could have come down from the cross. He could have put a big crater where Jerusalem was and said, I'm done with you guys. Didn't do that. He laid aside his, his all power. All presence. He was not everywhere present. He kept that one. He could still forgive sin. All-knowing, and there's several cases in the Bible where people ask him questions, and um, they ask him, when will this time be? When will you show the kingdom? And Jesus said, I don't know that. That's in the Father's keeping. Imagine that. Jesus, who knew before he came, he was actually taught these things at his mother's knee. You'll find that in the book Desire of Ages if you read in the right place. Jesus relearned what he had already written in the scriptures. He relearned it from mom. That's pretty amazing stuff. And of course, as I said, immutable, Jesus emptied himself. He changed from being the shape, and that's what we have in Philippians. He was the shape. I don't know what word you would use. The Greek writer uses shape. He changed from the shape of God to the shape of man. And so, basically... Uh, how many of these, by the way, do you have? Are you self-existent? Are you all-powerful? Are you everywhere present? Are you all-knowing? You, uh, are you above changing? All of those things are things, none of those things are things that we have. Jesus, when he came, all these classic attributes, you could say that Jesus laid these things aside, he emptied himself, and gave them into the Father's keeping uh, for a period of time. And so it's very interesting that when you look at the classic attributes that Jesus and you and I all are the opposite of this list after he empties himself, after he made himself of no reputation. So we have these bits here. We have none of them. God had all of them. This puts a problem on, though, because of classic theology, because God can't change. Jesus is God. So we have to make up some reason why Jesus didn't give aside any of these pieces. Yes, Kent. So we believe that he laid aside his Yes, that's what we, the question is, did Jesus lay aside his, his all, everywhere present uh, element of his deity? And uh, that's what we believe, that when Jesus came, he was joined into humanity forever, always to be one of us. And that's something he laid aside that he will never in eternity have again. So that is a pretty awesome thing. I mean, just for God to give up one of those things would be a tremendous humiliation. If you were deity, if you were God himself, he said, well, I'll just give up one of these things. But God laid it all aside for us. Amazing stuff. Uh, I want to give you a quotation here, from a, two quotations from the book, The Desire of Ages, 
and then one that might be a surprise to you, but this is Desire of Ages, page 336, that help us with some of this question about God laying aside his own powers and things. This is uh, the storm, remember? They're crossing the lake in the storm. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. When Jesus was awakened to meet the storm, he was in perfect peace. There was no trace of fear in word or look, for no fear was in his heart, but he rested not in possession of almighty power. It was not as master of earth and sea and sky that he reposed in quiet. That power he had laid down. This is Philippians 2, 7. He emptied himself. Amazing. Of that power he had laid down, and he says, I can of mine own self do nothing, John 5, 30. He trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care that Jesus rested, and the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. So Jesus is, is God, but this is the power of the Father the Ho or the Holy Spirit, or, or Jesus' power in their keeping, not in his keeping, because that power he had laid down. And Ellen White is talking kenosis, this self-emptying, the emptying of God. And theologically, you get into problems here because God can't change, right? So if you get a bunch of theologians that are steeped in the classic attributes of God, what do they wind up doing? They go back to uh, these, these attributes and they have all kinds of explanations why Jesus didn't really take, make any of these changes. It, all, it looked like he, was, he, he took this aside. It looked like he was not all-knowing, but he really was. He, uh, and so on. So there's many theological explanations for that. Lots of ink has been spilled to try to correct the Bible because Jesus can't change like that. God can't come down and become like us. And this also even goes back to some things that happened in the uh, second and third century. There was a, a lot of Greek philosophy that spilled over into Christianity. And uh, God is the unmoved mover. He never changes. He's not moved by human passions. So on and so on. All these explanations uh, come up. And the problem is that when we get to Jesus, we get into this fog, this fuzz of confusion because we've got to suddenly become lawyers for God and tell why these things. Jesus didn't change any of these things. I suggest to you that the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus laid aside certain of his elements of deity, not because he was bored that day. He did it so that you and I could be in the kingdom. He did it because he personally loves us and wants us saved. And he had to lay aside certainly his ability his immortality, or else he couldn't die on the cross for us. And so there's some mysteries here we'll always be studying through eternity. I'm not claiming to have the last word, and I'm sure you're not claiming to have the last word either. But uh, remember, we get into a lot of troubles when we have kind of a dogma. We're sure that God would never do X, and so what do we have? We get these smart people, we lock them in a room, and we start writing papers and making presentations to explain why it looks like God did X, but he didn't really because because the dogma says he could have never done that. But maybe he did. Maybe he surprised us and did it in a different way. So here's another one, Desire of Ages 3, uh, uh, 664 rather, the second one, Jesus revealed no qualities. Where is it at here? Okay, maybe I don't have a slide for that. Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him, his perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. Not an uh, obscure letter to somebody. This is Desire of Ages 664. Jesus' perfect humanity. You and I can possess it. Very interesting. Now, some people think, well, okay, we're interpreting Ellen White wrong, and, and one of the favorite arguments, and I'm sure you've heard it, in your, uh, heard it before, is uh, you're taking, you're cherry picking, you're taking parts out of context. If we just read it all in its context, uh, we would get it right. If we just read the deep theologians, why well, we would agree with them, and we'd know that we've misunderstood the Bible or we've misunderstood Ellen White. 
But let me give you uh, one other quotation here, and we'll only do one of these. Um, this is from a scholar you might have heard of named J.A.T. J. Robinson. He's not an Adventist. He was uh, an evangelical scholar. And um, what he says is so amazing. I think, I don't know if he read The Desire of Ages or if he just saw it right there in Philippians 2, but I'm going to read it to you. Just so you have at least one sample of something that a, a non-Adventist scholar, he's not on this question of the nature of Christ, that's not really a big thing for him or any of these Adventist questions. He's just reading the Bible and here's what he says. The first act in the drama of redemption is the self-identification of the Son of God, and then this is his words, and it's in italics uh, in his writing, to the limit. The first act in the drama of redemption is the self-identification of the Son of God to the limit, yet without sin, with the body of flesh in its fallen state. 99% of theologians don't want to say that, but J.T. Robinson says it. It is necessary to stress these words. Why? Because the Christian theology has been extraordinarily reluctant to accept at their face value the bold and almost barbarous phrases which Paul uses to bring home the offense of the gospel at this point. He's talking, he's, he's commenting on Philippians 2, the passage we're studying today. Um, there are pressing grounds for requiring the ascription to Christ of a manhood standing under all the effects and consequences of the fall. Isn't that interesting? The last part of his statement is, at any rate, it is clear that this is Paul's view of Christ's person and that it is essential to his whole understanding of his redeeming work. But I, I hear that the nature of Christ is optional, believe whatever you want, let's not make a big issue of it. J.T. Robinson says, this is essential. If you want to understand the atoning work of Jesus, this is essential. I'll tell you something else. Wherever you find this question of the nature of Christ or the question of the atonement, they're always together. Think about it. If you read Romans 8, if you read Philippians 2, if you read Hebrews 2, those are, some, those are three of the major Bible passages on the atonement. You'll always find the nature of Christ question and the atonement question. You'll always find them together. Very interesting. What's that? Those are uh, Romans 8, Philippians 2, and Hebrews 2. And of course, there are other passages as well, but those are the three main ones. Yes. All right. So anyway, we won't try for any more of those, but uh, I could tell you there are other theologians who uh, are widely known names who say something similar to Robinson, but that's not really our plan here is to work on that. Let's look at Philippians 2.7 again, or your Bible is open, I think, to Philippians. Remember, we're looking at the pattern you, then Jesus, and then you, and then Jesus. And so, uh, what do we have? And I, I think I alluded to this yesterday. For what the law could not do, the Bible says in uh, Romans, what the Bible could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Romans 8.3, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Some have urged it here that likeness means unlikeness. And however, when you look at verse 3 and verse 4, you find that he condemned sin in the flesh. It's, it's not ambiguous. It's not qualified. There are no qualifying statements in the passage. It just says plainly, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And by the way, he didn't condemn half of sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn three-fourths or one-third. He did everything that was needed so that you and I would have an atonement for us. Jesus provided what was needed. And you know, there's different versions of Christ. There's roughly three different versions of the nature of Christ in the church, right? There is, uh, he had the nature of Adam before the fall, totally different from your nature and mine. Then there's this kind of uh, fallen nature. Jesus had the same fallen nature as we have, more or less. And, but the one that's become the big popular thing, at least for many years in the church, is this synthetic view. He, would, he had part of, the, part of the nature of Adam before the fall and part of the nature of Adam after the fall. And what's been taught for many years in many books and sermons is Jesus was just somewhat like you and somewhat not like you. It's kind of this halfway house. The only thing is there's nobody, there's nobody who's ever existed that was like that. 
Yes. I had one pastor tell me that he had the nature of Adam after he repented. The nature, well, that's, that's okay. The one pastor said he had the nature of Adam after he repented. That's a clever thought. Um, you know what, in the book Questions on Doctrine, they emphasize that Jesus, um, Jesus had the, I'm trying to remember the exact wording of it now, it's escaping me, but basically, um, vicariously, Jesus took the nature, uh, he took our human nature vicariously. So that's kind of like fake. He sort of kind of took it, but not really. And uh, anyway, that was one thing they tried to sell there, and that didn't work, so they came back with this synthetic view, and that's been kind of the, the main thing. Again, what we're trying to do is look at what does the Bible say. When we look at the main passages, we look at all the passages, but uh, we just want to know what the Bible says. And the theologians can, uh, can write it up and, and type it up and do what they do. And the, everything theologians do is not bad, but we can get into some problems when we try to explain away the bare facts of Scripture with the ridiculous thoughts of men. So let's be clear about this. In Romans 8, what did Jesus do? He condemned sin. Where did he condemn sin? He condemned sin in the flesh. In what flesh did Jesus condemn sin? In the likeness of sinful flesh. And we said there's no qualifying statement about what Jesus did. And so he did not mostly condemn it in the flesh. He did not condemn sin in a flesh that was almost like our flesh. Those qualifiers aren't there. Sin was condemned actually and in fact in the flesh. What kind of flesh do you have? You have fallen flesh. Who is it that needs a Savior? A human with a fallen flesh. You need a Savior. In fact, you have sinful flesh. You have a human body that has been impacted by sin, the sin of all those who've come before you, starting with Adam. 6,000 or so years of your ancestors, make your, your, your predecessors, making um, sinful choices, following their own willfulness, and way down the way here, we all get that, even our mom and dad, and adding sins on top of it. That's what we get. We get the, we're at the bottom of the barrel. That's what we get. Jesus came with a, a humanity that was also impacted by sins. And by the way, how many times have you sinned? If you got a perfect body delivered to you by mom and dad, you didn't, but if you did, um, since then you've added how many sins? 10,000? If, if so, you, you're at a deficit of whatever you get plus 10,000. So... It's not good, and might be a lot more than 10,000. None of us could even count how many times we've sinned. So Jesus, your human body is damaged. Jesus condemned sin in human flesh, in fallen human flesh. He came to condemn sin in the kind of flesh that matters to us, the kind that we live in, and the kind that we have. And so what, how did he condemn it, by the way? He condemned it by obeying God in your kind of flesh. He obeyed it every time, all the time. Just the same way that you and I can obey God in it. He did not come because of the likeness of sin. He came because of sin. You can't dance around that or make something up about that. And so the, Jesus becomes the model for how we live. Uh, in Catholicism, actually, Jesus is, is, in some teaching, is looked at as our model. He's our substitute and our example. And I'm glad when I see that, no matter what church teaches it. Because it's true. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our example. But you know what? You get into a weird, weird place theologically when you begin to focus that Jesus is our substitute and you begin to unfocus on Jesus as our example. You get into a very strange place. We need both pieces. And I like it when the Bible is very fair about this. Jesus is our substitute. He's our example. And I like it when Ellen White talks about it because she will be consistently balanced Jesus is our substitute, yes. Jesus is our example, yes. And sometimes, though, the things we read or hear uh, today don't match up with that. We get this substitute, 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 but there's more. So how did Jesus overcome then? He employed the promises of God. He trusted the Father. He deployed what Ellen White calls in the book, Desire of Ages. He deployed the Scripture weapons. 
a lot of us don't know how to deploy the scripture weapons. And Ellen White talks about it. Read the chapters on victory uh, with Jesus in the garden. Not the well, the garden of the seventy is great, but go back to the uh, the forty days of fasting in the wilderness. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus was thrown into the wilderness, ekbalo, thrown, cast by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for those first 40 days before he began his ministry. In the Greek it says he's ekbalo. We have uh, ballistic missiles. Ballistic is when you throw something. So it says like that, that Jesus was literally thrown into the wilderness to face the testing and the temptations of the devil. And he overcame. So, we can overcome the same way that Jesus overcomes. He's our model for how to live. His life is not only a payment for our life, but he's our model for how to live. He did not come because of the likeness of sin. He came because of the real problem. So, Jesus came down. He makes atonement. And there's really no other way, unless God reduced this whole thing to a big show, and you know we were all just puppets in the show, and we had nothing else we could do. Um, then uh, we could just sort of watch the thing, and at the end we all get to file into the kingdom, and, and that'll be that. But that's not really what we find. There's a conflict between Christ and Satan, and it's very important to us how Jesus overcomes. It's important to us the nature that Jesus takes, and that's why in Philippians 2, even though J.A.T. Robinson says it's almost barbaric the way that Paul says it, it's so extraordinary, it's so radical, it's so extreme, and yet there it is. And so we're told that Jesus came down. Let this mind be in you, it was also in Christ Jesus, and then it talks again about Jesus, and then it talks about you, and we'll see this pattern. So, I don't remember which slides I have here because I didn't get to review that. Humbled and then he's exalted. All right, we're looking at our text and um, let's carry on a little bit further. How did Jesus overcome? We talked about that. Remember, in his promises and warnings, who does Jesus mean? He means you and me. The experiences related in God's Word are to be your experiences. We think about these super saints who were doing these awesome things, healing people, and we think about, wow, I wish I could be, you know, a spiritual giant like Paul or John or Peter or somebody. But these are to be our experiences. And a lot of us probably don't think too much about these being our experiences. We kind of see that as a separate category. But I think that as time goes on, we're going to see some more wild and intense things if we're willing to be yielded to him, if we learn how to uh, press the button and use our scripture weapons, if we learn how to have faith and trust in him, if we don't uh, have this fuzzy view that, well, God is all-powerful and I'm supposed to be able to trust him, but I'm really not sure I can trust him. I'm not sure if he's consistent with himself. I'm not sure if he's going to do anything for me. If we get away from those, those spaces we don't need to be in, I think God will bless us. And Jesus says, greater works, you're surprised by the works I'm doing, greater works than these you will do in my name. So we're going to see that. Well, let's carry on with our text. If you go to verse 12, we have a therefore. If you have King James, you have wherefore and Whenever you see the therefore, you should ask yourself the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Because Paul usually doesn't do this to us. He doesn't leave us dangling. Usually Paul, if you read Paul, actually when you read Ellen White, it's the same way, or most of the other Bible writers, Paul will, will give you a uh, greetings, then he'll give you a, a deep theological spot, and then after he does the deep theological spot, he's going to put you, he's going to hit you with a therefore. He's going to, at least he's going to come and he's going to give you application. So here's the big theology, and then he says, okay, how do we live? Romans 12, what do you have there? In Romans 12 you have, yeah, there's a lot of therefore that Paul gives us. He says, he says in Romans, you know, there he says, um, uh, let's do our reasonable service. This is, uh, this is okay. This is not just okay, this is great. 
Anyway, here at Philippians 2, that's where our study is. So if we just read Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If we just read that, that'll sound pretty good. But we're going to go into this therefore business. Now, before we get there, maybe one other thought, and I, I was trying to look this up today, but I, I didn't get the reference uh, offhand. But there's a place in the spirit of prophecy that's a very interesting little statement. We're, we're really doing a Bible study, but just the same. Uh, I'll throw this in there. Um, character is composed of the thoughts and feelings combined. Does anybody ever remember reading something like that? Yes. Character is composed of the thoughts and feelings combined. It seems like it's page 332. Is it child guidance or mind character and personality? I don't remember. Anyways, did Jesus have thoughts? Did Jesus have feelings? And of course, you and I have thoughts and feelings. Did Jesus have a character? Yes. Do you think that maybe Jesus' character was composed of the thoughts and feelings combined? Yes. Now, I know we think of God as kind of this scary, you know, he's way out there somewhere, and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. They're not my thoughts. They're not his thoughts. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And yet, isn't it true that God's character is composed of the thoughts and feelings combined? Jesus has feelings. When people spat on him, when people were smashing other people, when people were um, accusing him and glowering at him and uh, whatever they did to him or whatever they did to other people, when they came and they threw the woman in front of him accused of adultery, Jesus was not dispassionately like a computer saying, oh, Jesus felt terrible about that. So Jesus had a character. His character was composed of the thoughts and feelings combined, just like ours. So when we come to the therefore here, we're, therefore what? Where does this all track back to? Verse 5, let this mind, let this spirit, let this attitude be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let your character be an echo of the character of Christ Jesus. How do you do it? How do you put it into, into practice? How is it that it even happens? Well, so again, let's look now at verses 12 and 13 a little bit. The therefore is there because we're making a major transition in the text. That's a conjunction, a consecutive conjunction. It's linking these verses with the previous verses. Paul wasn't done when he finished verse 11. So now this is going to be pivotal and important to us. Therefore, my beloved, and I'm going to, for time's sake, I'm going to skip down to um, the latter part of verse 12 and the first part of 13. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So remember our pattern we, we threw up there somewhere? Here it is. Philippians 2. You and then Jesus and then you and then Jesus. You know, there was another point I was going to make and it's probably a critical point to make, so let me make it right here anyway. When it says in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, in the Greek language... That's an imperative. An imperative is a command. This is, does not mean if you'd like to be like Jesus, go ahead, but you don't have to. This in the text, in the Bible text, this is a command. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is a command to the Christian. You are to be like Jesus. This isn't optional. Now, we don't like to be commanded. We, I don't know, I don't, at least I don't like to be commanded. Do you, do you like to be commanded? I don't like to be told what to do. But you know what? There is times that, uh, many times people command us, and they command us for their advantage. They command us because uh, if I make this, if this person makes this sale, and you know, I, I buy from them, and then they go to report to their boss, and they say, oh, you're still giving higher sales now. So that's to their advantage if they sell the product to you. Uh, if they make a rule, Everybody has to do X in the, in, the, uh, in the world, and everybody does it. It looks good on them because they're the enforcer of the rule. So a lot of times we have things that happen to us uh, because people are busy commanding us. They're glad to command us. So we don't like that. But I want to suggest to you that it's many times also true that things we're commanded for, to do are for our advantage. When you're a child and, and your parents say, do not touch the wood stove, that is a command for your advantage. When the child's about ready to run out into the street and be smashed by a car, and the parent says, stop, 
or grabs the child and prevents it from being destroyed. That is a command to the child's advantage. When you uh, have to take your final exam and you say, I, I don't really want to take it, and the teacher says, you must take it or you won't pass the class. That's a command to your advantage that you take it. So many things are commands that come to us, but they are actually good for us. They're for our advantage. So this command to be like Jesus, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, this is actually a command to our advantage. So when we look at this last portion then, therefore, my beloved, here's how, some of the business about how to have this mind be in you. And how is that? Well, we want to be, uh, be like Jesus. So here's our key phrase. This is where Paul gets naughty. He cuts against the popular theology. He instructs the believer to do something that we don't like to hear anymore. I'm skipping over some pieces for time, but I want to uh, highlight something that we must highlight before we're done, and that's this idea of cooperation. There is a cooperation between God and man that is critical. It, it has to be. And some people say now we're definitely over into that forest of legalism and bad things like that. I want to suggest that we're not in a place of legalism any more than Paul is in the book of Philippians. How is it that we have the mind of Christ? It's going to take a lot of cooperation. Cooperation between you and God. Now, we're saved by, by Christ's righteousness, not our own. We're not trying to say we add anything to the salvation. But to get to where we want to be, it's going to require something. It's going to require cooperation. In fact, almost everything in this world, to be like Jesus, we have to cooperate. There's a beautiful chapter, I think it's in Christ's Object Lessons, called Asking to Give. It's, not, it's a very short chapter. Sometime when you have that book, you set aside and read that asking to give chapter. Everything in the universe works that way. That's God's plan, asking to give. That is basically another way of saying cooperation. Now, I want to study the Bible with you a little bit here, and we're going to just take the book of Philippians as our example, since we're, our, our main passage is one of the key parts of the book of Philippians. I want to bring out this idea of cooperation. It's all the way through here. So let's go ahead and um, let's race against the clock. So go over to Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to see with you if we can find maybe some cooperation in the book of Philippians. Is this a key principle in the book of Philippians? Philippians 1 verse 6. Follow with me. Philippians 1 verse 6, cooperation. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Of course, he's not going to complete it if you say, no, I want out. I want out of the contract. I'm going to do my own thing, go over the hill and do crazy stuff. I'm going to sin all day long. You Then fine, Jesus will not hold you to the contract. You can get out of the contract. But it's cooperation. He will finish it if you stay with him. Chapter 1, verse 11. Is this cooperation? Paul wants the Philippian believers to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. How do you get there? going to be some cooperation between you and the Holy Spirit, I can tell you that. Philippians 1, verse 19, cooperation. Paul will be delivered through a combination of the prayer of the Philippian believers and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. It's not just prayer. It's prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. There's some divine human cooperation going on there. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, cooperation. As the Philippian believers stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what they were supposed to do. That takes some cooperation, not only with God, but with your fellow believers. Philippians 2, verse 2. Cooperation by being of one mind together with each other. And then, of course, we have our passage here, Philippians 2, 5, having the mind that's in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That's, that's cooperative. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Again, that's where we're at right now. Letting God work in you to change you. Notice it is God who does the work. What did we say yesterday? There is a decision source and there's a power source. Who is the power source? Are you the power source? No. Who's the decision source? You are. The act of the expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself, we said yesterday, right? And we didn't say it. We just, we just 
echoed what Ellen White said. We just shared what she already said. So when you choose to sin, it's your decision. When you choose to ex for sin to be expelled in God's power, not yours, that's your decision, and God lets you own that decision. God says, yes, yes, he's choosing my mind. That person is choosing to be like Jesus. That person is cooperating with me. You know, the angels must just, the angels are just waiting in line for people they can cooperate with. There's a little passage in Desire of Ages, I don't remember the page number, but it says, the angels are waiting uh, what, with longing desire for people through whom they can speak. Uh, when you speak, the angels speak and will give you the words you need. The angels are just, I think it says, with almost impatient. Yes, eagerness, with almost impatient. Because if they were impatient, it would be a sin. But almost, <laughs> they're almost, almost, they just want to work with us, they want to cooperate with us. We, we've simply got this crazy thing like, we don't dare do this because we'll be legalistically working our way to heaven, but we are missing untold opportunities to receive the, the latter rain, receive the Holy Spirit, and to impart into the world God's goodness. Uh, not our goodness, we don't have anything to give, but, but God working uh, and just us letting Him use us. Cooperation. Uh, let's go to chapter 3, Philippians. By being found in Christ, having not one's own righteousness, but the righteousness which is given to us by Christ. Philippians 3, verse 9. That's cooperation. Philippians 3, go over to the next verse, verse 10. Cooperation, sharing in the fellowship in this life with Christ's sufferings. You know, we moan and complain about the uh, harsh things we feel like we're experiencing in our life. Each one, however, is probably less harsh than anything Jesus ever experienced. When you feel ready to complain, and then you go and you see the Christians who are being persecuted in this world today, in North Africa, in the Orient, uh, there's a website called Bitter Winter, it's bitterwinter.org or .com, talking about the persecution of Christians today in China. And some, there's some kind of weird teachings sometimes mixed in uh, over there, but you know what? There are people who believe what you believe who are losing their lives today and they're standing up for Jesus. And we are so cowardly, we, we can't stand up even to some bully in the government that tells us to do something or not to do something. In Canada, they're jailing, uh, there's several Canadian pastors that have been jailed in just the last month, two months, for keeping their churches open against the guidelines or the enforcement of the government. And we don't know, we, we, we can't stand up for the most basic things. Uh, but people are losing their lives for Jesus in China or going to jail in Canada. Anyway, I've diver divulged, divulged, that's not a word. I've diverged. Go back to Philippians 3, verse 17. Is this cooperation? This is a pretty scary spot in Philippians 3, verse 17. Isn't this the one where Paul says, follow me as I have followed Jesus. You follow my example as I follow Jesus' example. Uh, look to us. We don't want to ever say, look to us. Paul says it. Because he's cooperating. Philippians 4, verse 1. There's some cooperation when you stand fast in the Lord. It's not just you standing fast. It's you standing fast in the Lord. Cooperation. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. By praying and making your request be made known to God and receiving from Him His peace to guard your heart and mind. There's cooperation there. You're not doing it on your own. His peace doesn't come apart from your cooperation. Philippians 4, verse 8. Using your mind to think about the right things and not think about the wrong things. Can you do that on your own? How much success have you had in doing that on your own? Not too much. When the Holy Spirit is with you and you're cooperating with God, is he, is, are the angels waiting eagerly to help you? Is God's Holy Spirit waiting eagerly for you to call on Him for help and power? I, I believe, maybe I'm just all wrong, but I believe that, the, that we're living in the time of the latter rain, that God's power is available to us. If we want the Holy Spirit, we can have the Holy Spirit. If we want to overcome and have victory through Christ, we can have it. And yet, we have this our own crazy eye thoughts and moments when we want to go off the plan and do it our own way and have our have our crazy thing and, and be a Christian at the same time. It doesn't work that way. 
Because really, we're cooperating. There's two ways we're cooperating. We're all full of cooperation. We're either cooperating with us in heaven, or we're cooperating between us and hell. We're cooperating between us and the devils. Because don't the devils come along and they're ready to cooperate with you. The devils come along and they want you to uh, go back and you know that sin that uh, we, we've, we've already done this test. We've done this test on you 480 times. You've fallen every time. I want you to think about that sin for a while. The devils will come with that. And you know what? A lot of times we'll cooperate with the devils. God's calling us to cooperate, come up higher and cooperate with the Lord Jesus. Philippians 4.8, Philippians 4.11 Cooperation, is this an example of cooperation? By learning to be content with what you have, even while you're trapped in this age of vanity and consumerism, and people are all competing, looking at the nice car they want or the new electronic device they want. And don't we get trapped into that too sometimes? God help us. 4.13, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but we can't do all things through we who strengthen us because we don't strengthen us. But if we look at Philippians, and there's more, but these are just some, some quickies. If you go through the whole book from verse 1 to the last verse, the book of Philippians is all about cooperating with God. And so if we want, it doesn't help us understand Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ, when we realize that working out his own salvation, we work out our salvation, it is God who works in us, what we're supposed to do is what? Cooperate. If you read Ellen White now, next time you read your Ellen, any Ellen White, watch for the idea of cooperation. It's all over there. It's all through the Bible. It's, it's, read it in the Bible. Read it in Ellen White's writings. But we're nervous that we might accidentally do something and earn our salvation. So I'm not, I don't believe we earn our salvation by anything we do. We're not adding to it. We're not trying to add even 1% to it. But I'm saying if you want to be successful, there's some cooperation. And we want a Christianity without cooperation. And that is a powerless, flabby, useless, noodly, um, it's not Christianity. It's some kind of a fake thing. It's having the, uh, the appearance, but not the power. And God wants us, He wants to give us the help so that we in, our la in these last days will have not just the appearance, but we'll have the power, His power. So did we come up with anything brand new here? Is this a clever thing that, uh, that I came up with? No, no, and no, no. This is, this is really all that we're looking at here is boilerplate Christianity. If you were stuck on a desert island, you just had your Bible, and you had all the bananas and mangoes you could eat, and you were good to go, and you could study the Bible uh, a little bit because you're stuck waiting for somebody to come and rescue you. If you just read through the Bible there a few times, without extra theologians, without extra things to listen to, and you're just reading God's Word, I think, you would, I think you'd come along about the same way. The trouble comes when we try very hard to do what's, um, what's common and popular so these are strong goals. We have to conclude here. We, these are strong goals. God's Bible warnings tell you that your Christian walk is not going to go unchallenged, but this is a positive thing. It's a good thing. God is waiting. He's waiting with desire to cooperate with you as you form your character. The devil is waiting with malice and uh, cunning also to cooperate with you. Cain cooperated with the devil in the forming of his character. We've cooperated somewhat with the devil in forming our character. God says, I've got a much better plan. So friends, I just want you to realize that Jesus took a nature like us so that we could have this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus. How do you get there? Is it super complicated? Do we have to find this magic formula? You've got to read... Uh, 1,400 pages of theology to get there? I don't think so. What you need to do is take your Bible, get into a quiet place with Jesus, plead with Him, put your heart out there, and just let Jesus guide you. It's all there in the Bible. He will do mighty things through us if we will only allow Him to. He's a personal Savior, and let's pray together. Your Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercies.
Thank you for Jesus who laid aside parts of his deity, parts of that so that he could come close to us. Lord, help us to lay aside the things that we should have never grabbed. And let's go up higher and become more and more and more and more like Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.